Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. I'm your host, Yolanda Gonzalez, former administrative fellow and current administrative director at Mass General Hospital, located in Boston, Massachusetts. I invite you to join me as I engage with leaders in various roles across the healthcare field to gain real-life insights into their work challenges, the skills that have helped them succeed, and advice on how to get started if this is a path for you. So what are you waiting for? Let's start the journey today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Ann Messer, who is the founder, executive director, and board chair of One Good Turn, a global health nonprofit that provides medical education and culturally robust medical care to low resource communities around the world. In addition to her work with One Good Turn, Dr. Messer is a Fulbright specialist with the United States Department of State. Most recently, she was awarded the Inspire Humanitarian Award by the United Nations Association Austin Chapter. In this episode, we discuss what it takes to build an organization from the grounds up, how to form relationships, how lessons she's learned in global health can be applied to healthcare administration, and so much more. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. Dr. Messer, thank you so much for being on the Healthcare Leadership Mindset. It is so good to have you on the show today. Oh, I'm honored to be here. It was great to read about your podcast and then especially see all the reviews. People love the work that you're doing. And I just think that that's fascinating. And I do too. Like, how do we make our world? How do people in the world, this field of administration and healthcare have to create a bridge between their institution and actual patient care? And I just think that that's a really important space. I love the idea of young people coming into it and older people figuring out how to do that in a very patient-centric and open way, and it sounds like that's what you're doing. Reading about your background, your company, and all the work that you and your team are doing, I know that the listeners will be able to take away so much from the insights and lessons you're going to be sharing with us. Take us back to the very beginning by sharing a little bit about yourself and what ultimately led you to create One Good Turn. Well, let's see. I... um kind of went to medical school on an epiphany of, I actually started out in uh, communications and wanted to be a television anchor person. And uh, as I was progressing through that in college, I sort of had this epiphany that I really wanted to be doing the things I was talking about as opposed to talking about what other people were doing. And that led me to the idea of going to medicine because you get to really actually interact deeply with people. And I went to medical school, started out in psychiatry at the Mass General Hospital after a year at the New England Deaconess and really felt like I wanted to have um, just the opportunity to interact more broadly with families and with people more where they are instead of them coming to where I was at that moment. So that and marrying my husband brought me to Texas where I finished up a family practice residency program a community residency program, which is super different from hyper-academic Boston and the Deaconess and the General, Mass General. Um, And that taught me that that academic medicine has a critically important place, but that when you're in a community environment, people don't talk the way they do in academia and they don't relate in that way either. And so it gave me this wonderful opportunity to believe in the model of academic medicine, but know that I had to find a way to talk to things with my patients, talk about things with my patients 
using a completely different language. And I think if I look back at how I came to do one good turn, I can see that as a genesis for why I've always been so interested in providing healthcare education in an understandable way to whoever needs it, which that's the big thing. And how One Good Turn itself got started is my incredibly wonderful family went along with it one year when I decided that instead of buying a bunch of gifts for Christmas, we would just go on a family service trip. And we went to Nicaragua where we were supposed to help put a clean water system in. And when we got way back into the mountains of Nicaragua and it was my husband and myself and my three children and our niece, Um, they learned that my husband and I were both doctors and they literally shoved an old cardboard box full of medicines into our hands and said, don't do the water system. Our people need medical care. Can you please take care of medicine, medical problems in these communities? And they tossed us in the back of an old rickety pickup truck, my kids included, and up we went into the mountains until there weren't any more roads. And then we walked for a while. And then there was a stream and a couple of rivers we had to get past. So they put us on donkeys and Suddenly we were in the most beautiful and remote mountains in Nicaragua. And even though there were no cell phones and no electricity, somehow everybody already knew where we were coming. And so there were people just lined up waiting to see us at these schools that had nothing, just the broken down blackboards and and rickety chairs every now and then. And everywhere we went, we just took care of these people's medical problems as best we could with a language barrier, the wrong kind of medications, a stethoscope that we grabbed off the neck of somebody as we were pulling out, out of the town. And my incredible family who did everything from play soccer with the kids who were waiting for hours to see us to folding Advil into little packets and helping us count out medications to just so much that they got to see about what it was like to be in a community. And I, this is long-winded, I know, but I was left with Personally, this profound understanding or question in my head, I'd wake up at night after we got home from this trip, we were there for a long time, well, three, two, eh, not quite two weeks, was that the medical problems that we encountered were so simple. It was like gastritis and hypertension and upper respiratory infections and asthma. And in America, it would have been a quick trip to the doctor's office and you were done. And there it was like longstanding healthcare problems. And it was only because They didn't have the internet. They didn't have any way to have access to medical information. So that was so simple. All I needed to do was go back and start telling them about how we treat this stuff in America. And that was the idea, the very, very beginning of the genesis of One Good Turn. That's a great reminder of the technology, the care and resources that we have here in the United States that other areas may not. And it sounds like there was a lot you could take from what you had learned and apply it to these communities needing care. I'm really curious to hear from you. During this process, did you find that the communities readily accepted your knowledge and information and trusted you right off the bat? Or was that something that you had to build over time? I had to come to an understanding myself about how to grow that relationship over time. And it took years before I really got to the model of One Good Turn as it's been so successful today. I've been on many, many medical trips where you see a thousand patients and they all go through and nobody speaks the same language and and you just end up giving them a little plastic baggie first full of pills and nobody knows what it is. And I just realized that that wasn't affecting any lasting change. And there's in my mind, some question about whether or not that's helpful at all. I think that there are certain circumstances where it is. 
but I realized that if, if I, as a medical provider can work with the medical providers in the community and team with them on their patient care, not my patient care, but their patient care, that's where we can start to help with sort of best practices information to use a very, very American term. And how to do that, I've learned over time is to create a relationship with my, the healthcare providers long before I get there. And then when I do get there to recognize that they are the experts in their community, they're the specialists in their community. I am a student of their life and their community with a little bit more information than they may be readily have access to, but that nothing I have to offer is pertinent unless they ask for it, they want it, and they see why it's important. And so I can learn those things by being a student myself and by really working hard to find out what the healthcare providers I work with need the most and make sure that I'm not just offering them, you know, hubris filled advice because I got it off of up to date, but that I'm working with what they really need. You talked a little bit about creating relationships, not just with the patient, but with others who the patient trusted. Is there an example of how this ended up playing out that you can share with us? I was in Cambodia a couple of years ago um, with, we sort of matched some American medical students with some Cambodian medical students and went into very, very rural territory to work on whatever was there. One of the health practices that we were trying to um, implement was putting hats on little babies who had just been born. And in there, they get the stuff from the World Health Organization and the, the American Academy of Practice about like swaddling and putting a hat on the baby but nobody does it. Everybody gets a little plastic bag with a diaper and a hat and a blanket, but nobody used it. And so when we first went in there, I sort of jumped on these babies that were lying around literally on picnic tables without blankets on them and said, put a hat on your baby. You have to put a hat on your baby. And people were like, why, what, you know, what? And the midwives there just didn't really want anything to do with me. And I don't blame them. I'm a white doctor from far away. We don't speak the same language. We obviously have very dissimilar lifestyles and cultures that we came from. And as we were working on it, I saw a poster on the wall from the Jepego, from the Helping Babies Breathe. Well, I bring those with me and the little dolls all the time and the little masks because it's so important to make sure that they have an Ambu bag there in case they ever need it and see if they can use it. And they had been sort of shrugging off this poster and I ran and got mine and said, look, look, we're speaking the same. We've got the same poster. We have the same information. They were absolutely fascinated to discover that I knew anything that they'd already been exposed to. And that when we were able to compare their poster in Kamai to my poster in America, to my little doll, to their little doll. And then the midwife proudly brought me out and showed me her tiny little baby Ambu bag, which was soaked and had been sitting in the sun after several hours. And I very ceremoniously gave her mine. And then she was the leader and I was giving her a gift and acknowledging that she was doing everything right. She had the Ambu bag, she had the poster. And that gave her this sense of, I know what I'm doing. And so then she was able to see on the poster, there's that hat of that baby. Now I know what this doctor is talking about. And it turned into sort of a laughing and joking situation that the doctor wanted to put hats on all the babies, but the mom started doing it. And because it was on the poster, so people could point. 
and I feel like if I hadn't really worked hard to show them that I saw what they were dealing with and that I tried to learn about it myself before I ever got there, I don't think they would have, we would have had much shared ground. It was a good place to find shared ground. One of the lessons that I'm hearing is that as leaders, we have to be comfortable setting aside our pride or mentality that our way is the right way. And it's more so working collaboratively with others to provide the care that is best for the patient. It sounds like this is a strategy that you're using and that has helped you be successful in spreading health education in underserved communities. Absolutely. Usually I'm you know, in one clinic for two or three days, and then we move to another one and another one. And most often on the first day, I don't really do anything. I just stay and sit and I'm a student and I listen to what the healthcare providers are doing. And I look at the moms who usually don't trust me. And I say moms because they're always the first ones there. And you know, you're doing well if the dads start to show up at the end, because the moms with the really sick babies will be there. And then a little bit later, the younger moms will come and the teenagers will come with an acute illness. And then at the very end, the dads show up. But uh, I, I always just sit and watch and compliment people whenever I see anything that's going well. I always make sure to point out, that's awesome. You're doing a great job there. You know, yes, I understand that a lot of sort of affirmative body language that can really help and to rec so that they see that I'm not making any assumptions that I am learning from them before I start to put my input into the situation. So much of your work within global health revolves around forming great relationships with others and building trust and connection. Are there other strategies you'd recommend to leaders when it comes to building relationships with patients, colleagues, and others around them? Absolutely. The first one is be prepared. Like if I'm going to Costa Rica, for example, one of the things you need to know is the top 10 illnesses in Costa Rica, because one of them is cutaneous leishmaniasis, and we don't have that here. And if I wasn't able to recognize it in every single patient, and it's one of their most common illnesses, they're not going to trust me. So you do have to be super prepared to anticipate what you're gonna find when you go into a community. And I just mentioned up to date, but it's literally my holy grail. I'm on up to date every single day and they've developed so much amazing global health stuff, but that's a great resource so that I've really researched every single possible illness or complication I could imagine is gonna happen in that community mm -hmm. so that I have that information at the ready should I need it for anything. So I think that's really, really important. Um, I think if you, to make sure that if somebody asks me a question, I don't just tell them what I think the answer is. I always ask them, why do you wanna know this? Tell me more, tell me why. Because you can get to the bottom of a situation if you just ask that question over and over again in a very non-judgmental way. You know, for example, there's, wow, gosh, they, my head starts to flood with all the different examples, but if you were, okay, here's one. So in Africa, if a kid coughs at night, they, one of the common procedures to do is to give them a uveectomy and cut their uvula off because they think that that's going to help it. So if they get a sore throat, it won't be there so much anymore. Of course, from our perspective, that's an unnecessary surgery. But if I were to just say, that's why would you do that? Like, that's an unnecessary surgery. Why are you subjecting this child to blah, blah, blah? Instead, just to be like, why? Well, that's interesting. Why? Tell me more about that. Does it work? How does that help? Like, 
and so that I can get a sense of what's behind the practice. And actually the reason I picked that one is I have found as opposed to something like female genital mutilation or older male circumcision, I found that you ask a lot of whys around the uvula, it kind of turns into a, I don't know, I guess that's just what we do. And if that's the thing, then you get to say, boy, I sure understand that, you know, in America, women paint their fingernails all sorts of different colors. Like it's interesting, isn't it? But just to let you know, a scar could be trouble and blah, 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 so that you can just start to build a knowledge base. But you can't do that unless you get to a why point. That's a great example that when we're confronted with a practice or workflow that is outside of our norm, we should use it as an opportunity to ask questions and understand why that is a practice in place as opposed to reacting with a strong or negative response. No matter where or who we find ourselves with, I think this is a strategy that we can use to help build relationships and help others um, want to be able to take in our ideas and apply them and vice versa. It's clear to see why you and your organization have been so successful, but I'm sure it took a lot of work to get to where you are now. When you had the idea of forming One Good Turn, can you tell us how you built this company from the very beginning? Well, you know, there's not always a grand plan. I mean, that that's for sure. I, I really knew I wanted to make a difference and I could feel that education was the right way to do it. And literally, I just started going on trips. And first, I'd be an Indian. And then I sort of developed a little bit more of a leadership role. And then I started really recognizing what I wanted to do. And I had a good friend say to me, why don't you have a 501c3? How come you're paying for all these trips to Africa and Cambodia and you know, Peru and blah, blah, blah? And I was like, well, I don't know how to do a 501. What's that? <laughs> she set a 501c3 up for me. And then she asked her niece to set me up a website, which I also don't know how to do. And suddenly I had a little platform and that enabled me to reach out to people in America. And it's funny because it was the same type of platform that I was trying to establish with people in places far, far away, just a shared space where, where people could reach out. So that was the beginning there. And then I just followed everybody else's advice. I knew another woman who had a nonprofit. She had a connection with the University of Texas and she introduced me to the Bridging Disciplines program there. And I've gotten some amazing interns from there. And mm -hmm. that's wonderful. And then, you know, I talk about this at parties and a doctor will turn around and say, hey, I'd love to help you out with that. So I've had several physicians jump in and, and help with advice as we've gone along. And I think the idea of recognizing that if somebody wants to, help. It's great to say yes, but also realize that time is limited and try to make sure that whoever's offering to help has got a skill set that actually will help because it's really difficult to find yourself back in the teaching 101 situation over and over again. That's something that I've just recently learned that I need to do better at really making sure that whoever is joining the organization has a special skill set, one that I don't have and one that we can all benefit from. What does that process look like in identifying the skill sets that you need to add to your team? Another really good question. I used to think it was sort of gestalt and that as I was interviewing somebody or meeting with them for the first time, if they were enthusiastic and smart, that would be plenty. I've learned to ask a lot more pointed questions like what would you do if 
um, a website crashed, I'm making this one up. Luckily that hasn't happened to us yet. Or describe to me about social media. What, what do you put on an Instagram post to, get, to make people interested? And if I think that their answer is interesting, that's probably a reasonable clue that other people would think that their answer is interesting. Or if I have, if I'm writing the, the book, the COVID book that we wrote, one of our interns turned out to be, she was majoring in editing. She had a special job in editing at a different, at her school where she was at graduate school. And I was so grateful for her because I don't know how to edit. I can't even type. And so we grabbed onto that and figured out a way to put her in the organization. She was critically important to us as we wrote the book. So really looking and asking. And the other thing is that if somebody shouldn't be there, it is so hard to say, I'm sorry, but I'm not sure this is going to work out. I've had to learn how to do that too, but it's really better in the end if you do that. It also sounds like a good understanding of yourself and your strengths may be helpful in finding what other skill sets are going to be complementary to what you bring to the table. For example, you're the one in your organization who sets the vision, but I'm sure there are other skill sets that are needed to help grow and spread that vision. Totally. And you know, it's interesting. I have found, Yolanda, that there are less people who have a very clear vision of what they want to do and more people who really want to jump in and help. And just by whatever, the grace of God, I happen to be a person with a very clear vision, just like my work. It doesn't make me special. It just means that I've got that. And so it's fantastic for me to be able to surround myself with people who are really, really good at joining into that and can push that forward. And those are two equally valuable skill sets. I just happen to be the person with the vision, but I need the supporting, driving people all around me. They're essential. It can't happen with all the people that help push the push the mountain, push the push the waves into the ocean. <laughs> As a leader, it's so important to clearly communicate what your vision is. I would love to hear more about how you solidified your vision and how you communicate that to your team. That's a great question. The solidifying my vision, writing a mission statement is incredibly hard. Then fig that took like three years, even though we have a one sentence, it's so easy. But then to be able to really, the, the key point, what's unusual about One Good Turn is that I educate healthcare people. I don't go see patients. I mean, I do, I see many patients while I'm there, but only if that healthcare person is right next to me and we're doing it as a team. And I just had an intern not too long ago say to me, how does it exactly work with one good turn? Like, why, what's this? And I'm like, wait, wait, how can you work here already and not know that? And it's because it's so important to articulate. People come to us with a medical problem. We do a needs assessment, decide if we can help them in that community. Then we research intensively to make sure that we're not missing anything and create that program and bring it back to them and then deliver it over and over and over again. And then we follow up with them continuously. And so I have to say that very simple recipe, how to bake a cake over and over and over again, because when people understand the structure of what you're doing, they can figure out where they fit in. Oh, we need this person who speaks Nepalese and can only talk to us at nine o'clock at night because that's when wireless is a little bit less expensive in Nepal. We got to pick up the phone at nine o'clock at night. And, oh, we're doing that because we have to be very patient as we go through the niceties so that we can get to the questions about healthcare. And then, oh, now I understand why we have to do this needs assessment. We don't know if they have azithromycin where they live, which they usually don't. 
And so when you know the different steps of what you're doing and the steps are simple and clear, then everybody can follow along with that roadmap. There's an article that I read that mentioned, we may need to hear something up to seven times before it begins to click or make sense to us. So I really don't think there is such thing as over communication when it comes to sharing your vision or any other piece of information with others. One thing that we all have in common as leaders is our share of challenges. I'd love to hear from you. What are your challenges and how do you face them when they do come up? One of my biggest challenges is to not be exhausted and not and because there is no, there's no end point to global health. I'm not going to make everybody healthy. You're not going to either, Yolanda, in your whole entire life. Neither will all of Mass General. People, as one of my mentors said, you can go home and be with your babies because there's always going to be more patients. And so to just understand that we're in a process and we're servant leaders, you are and I am, and and that doesn't mean we have to serve everybody and that doesn't mean we have to lead all the time. It's okay to just keep hanging in there and keep doing your work and develop some longevity around your career so that you can develop some perspective. And also remember that just plain old life having nothing to do with achievement is really precious and don't lose that chance. Thank you for sharing that. That's actually something I've been reflecting a lot on, especially from someone who's early on in their career. You're familiar with the academia space where it seems like the more hours and effort you put in, the more you grow in your career. But that also comes at a cost and sacrifice in other areas of your life. Is this simply the norm or do you think that there's a different mindset we should have when we're first starting off in our careers and when it comes to setting those boundaries? Well, and I mean, I hate to say it is good to work hard, but you know what? It is good to work hard. I think where I would be on that is, yeah, to be really amazing at what you do, you do have to truly dedicate yourself to it. And there will always be another question to answer. I would just watch that you're not grinding away to create a knowledge base that's making you resentful, but that instead you really focus on things that bring you pleasure that give you energy while you're reading or talking about them as opposed to things that just make you roll your eyes and get frustrated and just hear yourself in that. And you know what? You are young and yeah, you're going to have to work really hard. You're in a hyper competitive environment and everybody around you has been, that's in their blood. I know I've been there. My dad went to Harvard. I totally know. And guess what? That's okay. Because that's why Mass General is a pinnacle. And how lucky you are to be able to surf that wave, that crest. It's, it's kind of like, you know, when somebody, for example, me decides they want to go to medical school and they probably didn't have that great of a grade point average. I had to work incredibly hard before I was getting A's. But once I was getting A's, if I stayed on my game, I kept getting A's. And so I do think as a young person, you have to work really hard until you get to a level of expertise then you can maintain that level of expertise and it's not so quite so tough anymore. That's a really good way to look at it. Nothing good ever does come easy and it's going to take a lot of hard work to get to where you want to be. But if it is something that you're passionate about, yes, you're going to have to put a lot of time in, but it'll be worth it because it's on a subject that you enjoy learning and being a part of. And at some point in your life, there will be things that will cause you to reflect on that balance and 
you'll be able to be in a place in your career where you're able to shift more of that attention to other areas in your life by initially putting in that hard work. It's so incredibly hard. I had my oldest son when I was a chief resident and um, it was brutal. It was so hard. I actually started to work part-time because I just couldn't split myself in half like that. I had no idea. Came from a 100% professional family, had absolutely no idea that I was going to feel so in love with my child and so in love with the role of being a mother. That was a brand new role for me. And I really have worked part-time for since our kids were born. And that whole entire time, I always felt torn because I knew I was missing the opportunity to be incredibly successful in medicine. And also I felt like if I even left it all, I was missing the opportunity to be incredibly successful as a mom. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, my, my oldest kid's 27 years old. I think that I've actually been really successful at both things, but certainly not perfect at either one of them, but that's okay. And that people to use a Brene Brown expression who throw themselves wholeheartedly into whatever they're doing are going to feel pain if they don't do everything perfectly. And that's okay too. And so it's just a balance and that's okay too. You are someone who has had so many experiences and I'm sure so many lessons to share, but if you could only share one lesson with healthcare leaders, what would that lesson be? Well, yeah, from a philosophical standpoint, medicine has gotten just ridiculously insanely hard and full of administration and lawsuits and way too much education. But in it, there is such joy in the amazing privilege we have to be in a very intimate space with our patients and our coworkers. And as we all struggle to find the answer to a problem that's elusive and, and I think if you can feel the joy of being able to have an opportunity to truly engage both intellectually and emotionally with what you're doing, medicine affords that to all of us and most other jobs don't. And none of us could have known that going into it. And so that piece of this amazing opportunity to both be intellectually and emotionally engaged and then also truly see other people, that's a really cool place. That is a great lesson and something we can definitely carry on no matter where we find ourselves in the healthcare field. I wanna make sure we have time to talk about the Corona Care Handbook, which is a book you recently released in 2020. Tell us a little bit more about the handbook. What inspired you to write it and where can we find out more about the book? Thank you for asking. So that was crazy because it was backwards. So COVID hit, which was incredibly scary. And we were actually in the Dominican Republic at the time and had a trip to Uganda scheduled shortly thereafter. And I suddenly realized that this, like everybody did, that this horrible thing was going across the world. And one of the groups that I was most worried about were the people that we work with in Cambodia because there are no hospitals there and there's no oxygen. And so we immediately started writing a super basic, how, how do you recognize COVID? What do you do to take care of it? What might you anticipate is gonna happen? We were writing it in Khmer for our rural health workers in the way North Cambodia near Thailand. And as we were writing it, 
I started getting all these phone calls from every single person I know saying, tell me about COVID. Can I breathe? What do I do? What should I wear? Is there, should you wear a mask? How do I put a mask on? What if, is there anything we can take? And I realized that everybody here was also not going to see a doctor if they got COVID because there are too many of us and that every piece of information that we were providing to Cambodia needed to be given here in America. So we literally translated our Cambodian text into English and then applied it to the what we see in our society here. We added a chapter for work and school and put it on Amazon. It was an unbelievable labor of love. I had 10 interns working on it. We, I mean, day and night, it was incredible. We put it on Amazon, it instantly became a bestseller. I think it might even now be the only like basic book written out there for people to actually know how to take care of their basic COVID in super basic words. Mm -hmm. Translated it to Spanish because we got asked for that, that became a bestseller. And then we um, just abridged it. So we now have a 2021 version because now we don't need the separate chapters on school and work anymore. And mm -hmm. it's got stuff about what does a virus actually look like? How does it invade the cells? Why does it hit your nose? The vitamin D and the zinc and how to like think about taking those things, breathing positions if you get sick, how to do your laundry appropriately, just all the little details that you'd have to deal with how to do isolation. Um, and it's just basic information. What's so crazy is now that there's a second wave of COVID in so many other places, we've re-abridged it and we're sending out chapters. We just sent them out to a bunch of people in Nepal. We sent out breathing exercises to India that thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the infographic that we sent out have been sent in every language in India. And so it's just super basic information that everybody needs. And if you can't get on the CDC website with 45 minutes to spare, you're not gonna get that information. This reminds me of a point you made when we first spoke that I will definitely take away from our conversation, which is keeping it simple, being able to relate to your audience in a way they understand. Healthcare should be simple and we should be able to understand and communicate about it easily with one another. It's definitely not there yet, but it's so inspiring to see you taking the steps to help bridge the gap and spread knowledge to those who really need it especially to vulnerable communities where this information can have a substantial impact on their quality of life and even potentially change the trajectory they are currently on. I'm so thankful for the time we've been able to spend with you. If the listeners want to learn more about you or connect with you, what are the different ways they can do so? Oh, thank you so much for asking. Well, our website is onegoodturn.org. So you gotta put org in there, I've learned recently. Um, and you can reach me. I'm at Dr. Ann Messer at onegoodturn.org. Please reach out anytime all over our website, onegoodturn.org. <laughs> um, there's places to click and get some of our COVID information and donate, which would be wonderful, or sign up for our newsletter or reach out to us with an offering or a suggestion. We love people to be involved. So I think that's probably the easiest way. We're also on Facebook at One Good Turn with the number one. And then our Instagram is one period, good period, turn period. So we've got lots of little social things going on that I don't take care of because I don't know how to do that stuff. I'm very grateful for the people who do. I'll be sharing those links in the episode notes for listeners to dive into if they want to learn more about One Good Turn and be able to connect with you. Dr. Messer, there is so much good work that you and your organization are doing. And I just really want to thank you for all that you and your team do. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time that you've spent with me and the listeners today. And 
for sharing those lessons and knowledge with us. Thank you, Yolanda. I loved it too. This is a great opportunity and I think it's fantastic that you're taking the space up and putting these podcasts out and just you're creating a community. It's wonderful where people are going to search for answers together and find each other's resources. And that's just a fantastic thing to be doing. So I'm really, really grateful that you invited me to come on the show and I'm going to watch you with excitement and interest. And I'm just so happy for everything that you're doing. It's really great. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to this episode. If this is your first time here, welcome. Please click on the subscribe button wherever you're listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review of the part you enjoyed the most. I look forward to meeting you all back here soon.